I think we ought to congratulate our cross-country team. They uh, swept yesterday that special invitational meet. We have two beautiful plaques I saw in the athletic office congratulating them. I think that, Jeff, did you say we took first, second, and third in both men's and women's? Something like that. Anyway, that's great. So thank you for uh, your efforts. Let's give them a little hand. I wish uh, I could participate this weekend, too, with the volleyball game on uh, Friday and the soccer match on Saturday. But as some of you know, we're having a special event down at Grace Community Church called the Old Fashioned Tent Meeting. And this is a time when we do our best to bring in unsaved people and uh, just have a, a really an old-fashioned kind of revival meeting uh, and present the gospel. Some of you know Ken Poor. He's going to be speaking Friday and Saturday night. So any of you who want to come down, come down and listen to Ken. You'll have an unforgettable evening. I get to be the song leader, and the, he gets to be the preacher, so it's a lot of fun. If you know anybody that you'd like to bring and doesn't know the Lord, Friday night at 8 o'clock, Saturday night at 8 o'clock. I think I said 7.30 on Sunday, but it's 8 o'clock. And then on Sunday night, after the evening, service, we leave the tent up and have an old-fashioned ice cream feed for all of you who want to come at uh, Sunday night service, and afterwards we'll have a great time there as well. Let's go back to our study for this week on the subject of worship, and it sure has been a helpful one for me as I've gone over many of these things. In my own mind, as you probably know, some time ago I wrote a book on the subject of worship, and I'm trying to distill a few of the things that are in that book to share with you. It sent me back to my study, and every morning this week before I come down, I've spent a couple of hours in God's Word refreshing my own mind in the matter of worship, and it's been so helpful in my own life as well, just to give my focus a little bit of a, a reestablishment in the matter of worship. Now, we've looked at the importance of worship, and we've looked at the object of worship. We saw how important it was. We were saved to worship. The Father seeks true worshipers. The Old Testament and the New Testament gives us very, very clear and rather far-reaching instruction about this matter of worship. We also saw the object of worship, and that was God, God who is the Father, and God who is Spirit. Now, today, and probably tomorrow also, we want to talk about the nature of worship. What is it? What is it to worship? How do we worship? There are a couple of ways to approach this, but let's begin with just a kind of a general look at what worship really is. When you think of worship, you may think of something very narrow, like praising God or thinking about God, meditating on God, and of course those are worshipful things. But worship has a much broader base. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, look in your scripture at the 14th chapter of Romans. And in the 14th chapter of Romans, the basic theme is how we treat other people. It's how you treat a weaker Christian, someone who doesn't understand his liberty in Christ, how you serve that other believer. And you'll notice that uh, in verse 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, uh, you, you don't want to you don't want to reduce the kingdom of God to things like eating and drinking in the sense that you would do those things and offend another brother. It's much more important that you understand the kingdom is made up of spiritual realities. The point here is that there are some Christians who are free. They understand their liberty. They're not hung up on some of the past things of 
Judaism, for example, uh, they no longer want to maintain a kosher diet or they no longer coming out of a Roman pagan environment are stuck with not eating meat offered to idols. They understand that an idol is nothing. So they're free to eat. They're not hung up by their former Jewish tradition or pagan tradition. And they want to use their liberty, but there's some new believers who are still hung up. And what Paul is saying is don't use your liberty if it offends someone else because the kingdom of God isn't really made up of eating and drinking. It's all about righteousness and joy and peace. In other words, you want to work toward the spiritual ends and not the physical ones. And if you serve another believer like that, verse 18 says, if you serve in this way, that is acceptable to God. Now, the term acceptable is a worship term. It's a term that speaks of offering something to God like a priest does. So what he is saying here is that your loving treatment of a weaker Christian, not using your liberty to cause him to stumble, is an act of worship. That's really all I want you to get out of that verse. Just that thought. That how you treat another believer is an act of worship. It's you offer that to God. That is a kind of spiritual service offered to God. So when you say you want to be a true worshiper, it's more than just thinking about God. It's more than singing about God. It's more than praying or meditating on God. It's how you treat another believer that is your sacrifice or your offering given to God. So you want to be very cautious and careful in the way you treat other Christians and never use your freedom in Christ to cause another person to stumble. Look at chapter 15 in Romans for a moment, verse 16, and we'll just try to broaden your horizons with regard to worship. You will notice that Paul writes in verse 15, I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God and that my offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable. And there's that word again. Here he talks about being a priest. He talks about making an offering and an offering that is acceptable. That's all liturgical language. That's all priestly language. And Paul is saying this. My ministry of evangelism is my offering to God. I'm like a priest. And what I offer God are the, are the people that I have given the gospel to. So another means of worship is evangelism. When you share Jesus Christ with someone, when you witness to the truth of the gospel, when you proclaim the message of salvation and someone believes, you're offering, as it were, that ministry and that person as a spiritual offering to God. It's an act of worship. Paul saw his ministry as an act of worship. Serving one another then is an act of worship. Leading someone to Christ is an act of worship, for that then becomes your spiritual sacrifice. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 10. If you back up to verse 8 again, always having to sort of set the context. You were formerly darkness, he says, before you were saved. Now you are light in the Lord. Then this, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. In other words, live your life in goodness, righteousness and truth. Now this is compassing all of life. Walk in the scripture always means your daily conduct. Whenever you see the term walk, it means your daily conduct. So your daily conduct is to be in goodness, righteousness, and truth. Verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And there is another priestly term. What is pleasing or acceptable to the Lord. How you live every day is an act of worship. It's your offering to God. And as a spiritual priest, everything you do, how you treat others... 
that are in the family, how you treat the unsaved, witnessing to them, and how you personally live. All of those dimensions of your life are acts of worship. So when we say that worship is a way of life, that's exactly what we mean. Praise is a part of it. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 down at verse 15. It says, through him, then, that is through Jesus, who provided the sacrifice that gave us access to God. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Now, I've just hit four dimensions, all right? I want you to think about it. Number one, you worship in the way you treat other believers. Number two, you worship in the way you witness to non-believers. Number three, you worship in the way you conduct your own life. And four, you worship in the way you exalt and praise God. Now, those are the only areas, the only dimensions of relationship in human existence. You're either related to yourself, to another believer, to an unbeliever, or to God. And in all of those dimensions, Scripture clearly indicates that you are involved in worship. You are involved in worship. And you offer to God the fruit of your lips, praise to Him. There's one other thing that I would like to point out to you that I think is important. 1 Peter 2.20 And this verse I think is good for us to just be aware of. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. We've been called to suffer, okay? We are a spiritual priesthood. Go back to verse 9. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And part of our, our priesthood involves a certain amount of suffering. And I just want to set this point in your thinking because I, I believe it will help you through the rest of your life. It has me. Part of God's working on you to make you a better worshiper is to put you through suffering. Okay? So life with its difficulties poses a tremendous prospect for you and for me. And that is it can make us better worshipers. Because the more difficulty we go through, the more we tend to look to whom? To God. When everything goes well, odds are you're not going to be pretty, very intense in your worship. When things go poorly is when you begin to focus on the Lord. I trust if your heart is right. So going through trials and going through difficulties is part of being refined as a priest who is able to offer up spiritual offerings. It, it helps your Godward focus. There's a graphic illustration of this in... The Old Testament, just a, a rare and obscure kind of verse. I don't think I've ever heard anybody comment on it. But I discovered it in my reading, and I think it's just such a very rich thought. In the 48th chapter of Jeremiah, where there is a, a statement of judgment made against Moab. Moab, of course, was a nation to the east and the south across the Dead Sea from Israel. And the Moabites, as you well remember, were a cursed people because of their evil. And here comes Jeremiah pronouncing judgment on Moab that the God of Israel is going to come against them. And in verse 11, he says this. Very interesting. Moab has been at ease since his youth. You know what's the problem with Moab? Moab never had any trouble. And because Moab never had any trouble, Moab never needed God. He has also been undisturbed, he says. 
Life has been too easy for Moab. And therefore, there was no, no driving them to the deity who would solve the problems otherwise unsolvable. Then it says, neither has he been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his flavor and his aroma has not changed. You say, what in the world is that? What do you mean gone from vessel to vessel has retained his flavor and his aroma hasn't changed? Here's the illustration. It's an illustration from making wine. Now, in those days, I'll tell you how they make wine. I, I discovered this in, in reading some ancient documents, and I guess it's pretty much like they do today. They would take the fruit of the vine and they would crush it. And then they would pour it into a vessel. Often it would be a skin. They would pour it into the vessel and they would just let it sit there. And they let that wine sit there until the sediment would fall to the bottom. That's called the lees or the dregs. It forms some kind of a potassium, I think a potassium tartate is what they call it. But it would drop to the bottom and a sediment would settle in the bottom. And then they would pour out the wine that was left on the top into another vessel and let that sit for a long period of time. And more sediment would come out and they'd pour it into another thing and more sediment would come out. And they'd pour it into another thing and finally they would pour it into something, leave it for a long time and there would be no sediment at all because it would all be gone. And that is when the wine would have the purest, sweetest aroma. And then they would take all that sediment and make vinegar out of it, which no one cared to drink because it had all the bitterness in it. And what God is saying to Moab is, you know what your problem is? You've never had the bitterness taken out of you. So your life is not a sweet offering to God. You've never been made fragrant by trials. See? Worship is born out of trials. And the problem with Moab, they didn't worship the true God because they had never had the bitterness poured out of them or drained out of them through the trials of life being poured from one vessel to another. Now, some of you kids are having a trial right now. You're starting to feel the pain of homesickness. You're starting to feel the loss of friends. Maybe a, a close friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, maybe a, a dear friend that uh, has been your pal for years and you're away. Or maybe you're starting to feel the trial of academics. Uh, you've been hit right between the eyes and with all these assignments and you're beginning to quiver a bit. Or maybe your roommate um, bugs you a little bit because he does things that uh, you're not used to someone doing in your room. You know, I mean, that's life. And those are pretty minor things. It may well be that some of you have a parent that is ill, facing death before this year is over. That well could happen to many of you. This is the time for the Lord to, to put you into a vessel and let some of the bitterness fall to the bottom. And it only happens, it only happens in the trial and the testing times. When everything is going just the way you want it and you control your whole agenda, nothing is perfected in you. But when you have to be poured from one trial to another and the bitterness comes out, the end result is going to be all the bitterness is gone and your life becomes a sweet aroma to God. And that's exactly what God wants to do in your life. So you worship in every dimension of life, but there's this sort of overarching concept that you've got to keep in mind that in order to perfect you into the kind of worshiper God wants you to be, he may be having to work out some of the bitterness in your life. And there are a lot of ways you can do that. A lot of ways. In almost any area of life. And if you've got any spiritual moxie, you're going to have the courage to say, God, I want to be the purest worshiper I can be. I want to worship you with my whole heart and soul and mind and strength. And if it takes the bitterness being taken out of my life by trials, then please do it.
because the end result is so wonderful. I don't know about you, but I'd like to get all the bitterness out of my life as soon as I can, wouldn't you? So I can be that sweet-smelling aroma to God. So let the Lord perfect that in you. Well, that's basically just a general look at the areas in which worship occurs and what God uses to mold you into a true worshiper. Now let's go back to our text in John 4, and I want to just cover two points that are essential that must be understood if we're to know the nature of worship. The first one is that we worship in spirit. The second is that we worship in truth. Remember the text, verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father, here it comes, in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Twice in verse 23, verse 24, we worship in spirit and truth. Now that is the nature of our worship. The extent of our worship, it involves all of our life. How we treat believers, how we treat unbelievers, how we treat God, how we treat ourselves in terms of our own righteousness. And in the context of letting God take the bitterness out through trials, we're going to be able to fully worship. But the very heart of worship and the nature of worship is tied to these two things, spirit and truth. This is the true worship that the Father wants. Now you say, well, what does he mean by that? Spirit has to do with the spirit of man. Truth has to do with content. God wants us to worship with our spirit, that is with our feelings and our emotions, but he also wants to worship with our what? With our minds. It is not either or, it is both. It is both. And the contrast here is remarkable. On the one hand, you have the Jews worshiping in Jerusalem. They had the truth, but no spirit. Theirs was a cold, dead, chilling, killing orthodoxy. They had the truth. They had the Old Testament, but they had no heart for God. As in the Old Testament, it says, your lips are near me, but your heart is what? Far from me. They had the truth, not the spirit. On the other hand, the Samaritans who were developing their own worship on Mount Gerizim, this little group of people who were half-breeds, who had, who had been taken off into the captivity of the northern kingdom and intermingled with the Gentiles and, and lost their pure Judaism, they had not been able to go back to Jerusalem. They were outcasts. They were despised and hated. So they developed their own sort of hybrid religion up on Mount Gerizim. And they didn't have anything but the Pentateuch. And so they were limited as to truth, but they were tremendously emotional. They had the spirit. It's amazing. There are a few hundred of them left today, and if you were to go to Mount Gerizim and they allowed you, you could go to that same mountain and watch that little tiny group of Samaritans that still exist doing their thing. Their enthusiasm for it and the emotion of it and the feeling of it and the tradition of it has sustained it through all the centuries. They had the spirit, lacked the truth. Jews had the truth, lacked the spirit. And Jesus says, you have to have both. All the enthusiasm and all the feeling and all the emotion and all the joy and all the praise of worship, but it's all controlled by the truth. Now, what does he say to the woman? Verse 22. What does he say to her? You worship that which you do not know. In other words, you lack truth. You don't really know what you're worshiping. On the other hand, we worship what we know. And the implication there is we know what we worship. We don't have a heart for it. The Samaritans were enthusiastic. 
even though their temple had long since been destroyed, I think it was destroyed about 128 B.C., they were zealous. To this day, they're still zealous. Just on top of the city of Nablus, they do their worship. They didn't know what they were worshiping because they rejected everything but the Pentateuch. All the holy writings, all the prophets, all the history, they rejected that. All the poetry, they rejected that. In a sense, we could call them enthusiastic heretics. And they're not unlike many people today who have an enthusiasm for worship, but it lacks truth. Sometimes I look at uh, sincere, earnest, devout people who want to worship God, but they're ignorant. I turn on the television. You ever turn on television and see these people? I mean, they're into it, right? I mean, they're yelling and flailing. And, uh, you know, sometimes the, 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 the fringe of the charismatic movement, I mean, they're just way out there somewhere. I've often said I'm not worried about them getting to heaven, but I am worried they'll go right on by. I mean, they get to flying pretty high. I mean, I think they believe the gospel, many of them, but their approach to worship lacks an understanding of truth. On the other hand, the Jews are typical of contemporary fundamentalism in many cases, aren't they? They've got all the right theology, but their hearts are cold and dead and indifferent to spiritual reality, and they have no enthusiasm for God. That's sad. On the one hand, you can have all the accurate data, but if you have a cold heart toward God, you do not worship in the way He wants you to worship. On the other hand, you can have this fiery, enthusiastic heart, but if it's not framed and controlled by the Word of God, you're out of line. There's a perfect balance. Perfect balance. One writer says, Men have worshipped with open Bibles and with the name of Christ and the Bible on their lips while whole congregations have been held in the grip of barrenness and lifelessness and powerlessness, where it has been weeks and months and years since hearts have been ravished with the sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Years since any hymn has been sung with abandonment. Years since a tear has trickled down the face of a worshiper. Years since a hallelujah flamed out of a bursting heart. End quote. I hate to think of it, but most of us grew up in churches like that. Most of us grew up in churches where nobody really just was emotionally swept up into worshiping God with their whole heart. Why? That doesn't please God. Our indifference. It's because we get too much truth and we get camped on our truth. And truth and content, are you ready for this? Substitutes for the reality of the person of God in Christ. We don't worship a creed. We don't worship a set of dogma. We don't worship doctrine. We don't worship some doctrinal statement. We don't worship our stand or our position or issues. We worship God in Christ. And if we commune with the living God, there, as Tozer used to say, we have lost our O, O-H. We've lost our O. When do you hear someone's prayer, which is a cry out to God from a heart that is overwhelmed with feeling for Him? It's rare. And if you do see it, you see it among people who don't know the truth so often. And their approach to God is an unbiblical one. So you start then with worshiping in spirit. And that means your human spirit. That means the deepest part of you, the real self, the inner man. The spirit of your mind, as Paul refers to it in Ephesians 
In Romans 1.9, I love what Paul says. He says, God is my witness whom I worship with my spirit. Worship, latruo, from which we get liturgy. Paul says, I worship with my spirit. What did he mean? I'm not into symbols. I don't worship with a candle. I don't, I don't worship with a stained glass window. I don't worship with an organ. I don't worship uh, with some kind of altar. I don't worship with any of that stuff, with a cross, a set of beads, any of that. I don't worship with some kind of sacrifice or offering. I worship God with my what? My spirit. The reality, not the symbols. How long has it been since you felt what the psalmist must have felt when he said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Psalm 103. Do we feel that toward God? Do we find our heart crying out in adoring praise to God? If we don't, it's because we've substituted our theology or our doctrine for our relationship. And that can happen so easily. It happens all the time. You say, well, how do I help myself in that area? I think you have to concentrate on the person of God. Okay? I think you have to concentrate on the person of God in your life. That's been a concentration for me. Years ago, when I first began to come to grips with my lack of worship and with the fact that I had all my theology in the right pigeonholes, but I really wasn't seeking God, I began to go back to the Word of God and ask the Lord to change my life. And the first scripture that just shook me up was 1 John chapter 2. I got into that thing and it said, I write unto you, young men, because you, know, because you uh, know the truth, the truth dwells in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you know the Father. Then he says, I write unto you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. He wrote unto little children, young men, and fathers. He said the little children knew God. He said the young men knew doctrine. He said the fathers knew him who is from the beginning. What did he mean? Well, when you first become a Christian and you're a spiritual child, you just know God. You, you just know who he is. It's like spiritual dada. You just, you, you know God and that's about it. Then as you grow as a Christian, you become strong in doctrine and you know theology. And you've overcome the wicked one. Why? Because he's an angel. He's disguised as an angel of light proclaiming false doctrine. So when you know true doctrine, you've overcome the wicked one. Doesn't mean you've overcome the lust of the flesh and all that, but the wicked one who is primarily involved in false doctrine, Satan. But you can't stop there. You can't stop with your theology because a spiritual father is one who knows him who is from the beginning. What does that mean? That you have an intimate relationship with the eternal God, see? It's one thing to know what the Bible says, like a new Christian does. It's another thing to know all that the Bible says, like a strong doctrinal person does. It's another thing to know the God who wrote the Bible intimately. And the spiritual pursuit of every life has to be to know God. You say, well, is that mystical, John? No, it's not mystical. How do you come to know God? You come to know God by letting Him reveal Himself to you. How does He reveal Himself to you? He reveals Himself here, right? But it's a perspective. So every passage of Scripture I ever study, when I'm studying it, I am trying to hear out of that passage, what does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about Christ? I don't want to just know what it says for my life. I'm not interested in it. I don't want to take every passage of Scripture and figure out how I can make it work in my life. That might come later. What I want to know is what does it tell me about my God? How much more do I know about my God? Does it draw me closer to Him? Does it expose more of Him to me? Have I learned something else about Him? 
That's, that's what you have to do as you study the Word of God. So when you have your devotions every day and you, you get down and spend some time in let it reveal God to you so that you're going beyond theology. You're not just con- concerned to systematize or analyze or figure where does this fit in my theology, but you're saying, oh God, what is this telling me about you? Do I know you better? Do I love you more? Does this open a whole new vista for me? You see, this is the joy. This is the discovery process. A couple of Sunday nights ago when I preached on James 5, I interpreted a passage that I'd never understood in all my, all my years. And the thing that overwhelmed me about it was so thrilling to me was because it opened a whole new dimension of God's concern and Christ's concern for His church, for those who are the weary and the weak and the broken believers, and I saw the heart of God. See? So the more I know God, the more readily I can worship Him. So... Worshiping with the Spirit, I really believe, flows out of concentrating on God. And there's two things to concentrate on. One is His attributes, two, His acts. His attributes and His acts. What does it say about who He is? What does it say about what He's done? And you just ask yourself that. For years and years I've been reading a book called The Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock. It's a big, thick, and kind of expensive book. If you find it, get it. The existence and attributes of God. You'll spend your whole life reading it and you'll never read it all. It's just, it's just a tome, a huge thing. But it just continues to focus and focus and focus on the person of God. And at all times in my life, I'm always reading something on the nature of God. I was sharing that with the faculty a couple of weeks ago. And I never wanted there to be a time when I'm not looking at God. So I read the Psalms a lot. Even on our worship services at Grace Church in the morning, we always read a psalm because we want to see God. If we're going to worship God, we want to know the God we're going to worship. And that's what gives rise to the Spirit. Well, obviously, that all connects up with the second point, which is truth. Which is truth. You worship God not only out of the emotional response to Him, but out of the truth learned about Him. And the two are perfectly wed together. So we must worship in spirit, and we must worship in truth. We must have an undivided heart. The psalmist wanted an undivided heart so that he could totally worship the Lord. But we also must have a clear mind. A clear mind. We cannot worship other than the God who is God. Psalm 47.7 says, Sing ye praises with understanding. Did you get that? So we want to worship in a true way, the true God. And worship that is all emotion and all feeling and all enthusiasm, but it's not biblical, isn't pleasing to God. People say to me, well, you say your church is having a worship service, how can you preach for an hour? That's not worship. I've been criticized through the years for that. That it was too much preaching in that service. If it's a worship service, my response is, how can we worship a God we don't know? And how can we worship a God we have not acknowledged? And so we study God's Word so that we may know the God we worship. We want to worship in spirit, but we also want to worship according to truth. According to truth. Truth is at the heart of worship. Spirit is the response. Okay? So you go to the Word of God, you learn the truth, and out of that comes the spontaneous, joyous cry of your heart. Well, may God help us to learn to worship in spirit and in truth. Let's have a prayer together.